Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, y'all, I'm back with another episode of The Crystal Night Show brought to you by Newsweek. And today's conversation is all about policing and police reform. $13 billion has been placed in the federal budget to allocate more money for police officers across this country. But what about allocating money to address some of the systemic issues that cause high amounts of crime? Today, I'll be speaking with Pastor Michael McBride of Live Free USA, and he's the co-founder of the Black Church Pack. Pastor Mike has been on the ground on a number of different tragedies that have faced black people and policing in this country. He's also been an advocate for policing reform as a survivor of police brutality in this country. Today's conversation is timely. It's important as people head to the polls in November and we get into some of the really specific policy challenges that have faced federal legislation and state legislation as it relates to policing in this country. Welcome to the show, Mike. It's great to be here with you, uh, Crystal, on the Crystal Night Show. What an honor. And thank you for joining us, Mike. I'd like to start this conversation by really opening up to listeners a little bit about your background. I know you very well because of the work that you've done around policing, the activism you've done when mass shootings have happened in this country. You tend to go and be on the ground with the people. Um, you know, there was a recent shooting in Oakland. I'm at a high school in Oakland. There was a recent shooting um, in Buffalo, New York, where lots of, you know, African-Americans were patronizing a particular grocery store and a mass shooter just decided to go in and, and you know, wreak havoc in that particular neighborhood and in that community. But, you know, beyond that, there are many other things that you do around pushing for better policing in this country. I've seen you on Capitol Hill. I've seen you walking with, you know, elected officials, religious leaders, activists, really all centered around um, how policing affects black people in this country. And I know you have deep roots and work in Ferguson leading us all the way up until today. So I'd like you to just kind of give the listeners a little bit about Mike and why you are involved in this fight for policing reform in this country? Well, you know, I think it's really important to appreciate my own journey and story around policing and the issue of violence in my community. I'm a native of San Francisco, California, born and raised um, in uh, the part of the city that is known as the Baby Hunters Point community, um, a community that historically is uh, largely black and working class 
um, San Franciscans who largely relocated to this part of the country, um, fleeing the racialized violence of the South, right? And so um, growing up in the city my whole life, you know, and watching the crack cocaine epidemic um, happen in our communities and the response in the 90s was to literally criminalize large swaths of our communities in an effort to address the violence that grew out of the, the era of drug dealing and drug addiction. But I myself got caught up in the kind of dragnet of policing. I was physically and sexually assaulted by two police officers while I was a youth pastor in San Jose. And um, as our congregation mobilized to respond to my own personal trauma, um, the young people in my congregation began to tell me that that experience of being uh, racially profiled racially profiled, pulled over by the police and brutalized, uh, was happening to them regularly. I asked the young people, why did you not share this with me? And they said they did not believe the church was a place for that part of their life to be addressed. And I really felt like I, you know, was inspired by God to wrestle with the question, what is it about my ministry, my work, that these children and families would trust me with the salvation of their souls, but not the safety of their bodies? Um, and so I come to this work as a survivor of violence, both interpersonal and community, and also as a result of police violence. I come to this work as someone who has tried to care for children and young people and families in Black communities uh, that, through no fault of their own, are often victimized by state violence or interpersonal violence. And so my passion is really about trying to make meaning of my own pain, but also help liberate and um, ensure that the next generation does not have to kind of fight this same giant of racialized policing, state violence, white supremacy, anti-Blackness that um, is often institutionalized, right, in policy and practice. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's been, been a 25, 30 year long endeavor, um, but it's, it's not an altruistic exercise for me. It's something that flows out of my own experience. Got it. Well, thank you for sharing your story. And um, thank you for being a survivor that is living to tell your story, because many folks who are victimized don't live to tell the other side. So I just want to yeah. acknowledge that and acknowledge your presence here with us. And I want to bring the conversation to where we are today. We are weeks away from the midterm elections and violence is a number one issue. It's it's a it's a top issue in this country. Many of the talking points that I hear, particularly on the Republican side, they will say a lot of the democratically run cities are, you know, or experience the higher levels of violence. So how do you reason with what the other side is saying with the state of policing, not only in your own city of Oakland and in Northern California, but just across the country? What is the landscape that is happening at the federal level um, where members of Congress, members that are sit sitting senators who are lobbying to address some of these systemic issues that you're speaking of? So I, I say many things can be true at the same time. Um, and it, we ought to call out what's true, but still speak very clear about what is false. It is true that violence has taken an uptick since the onset of the global pandemic known as COVID-19 in the first quarter of 2020. Okay. It is not true that 
uh, quote unquote, democratically run cities are more violent um, than Republican ran cities. First of all, mayors are not <laughs> um, politically identified. You know, most mayors are running as nonpartisan um, positions, right? I mean, you know, I don't think people uh, fully appreciate that some of this is an ascribed kind of political affiliation. Having said that, if you take a look at states, uh, it is actually more true that states that are ran by Republicans have a higher per capita crime rate than states that are not. And so what I challenge Democrats and others who really care about this issue is to not take the talking points of Republicans as fact. Um, I think the Democrats continue to be terribly uh, insufficient um, at at the, the, the level of national, state, and even local leadership when it comes to messaging around crime, violence, and public safety. I think it is largely because of the anti-Blackness that is too often uh, under the surface within most Democrat progressive spaces. Uh, while they would claim to be the champion of many of our communities, they themselves have not interrogated their own assumptions that crime equals black. And so they are not able to nuance the public conversation around crime, um, around violence, around trauma. And so they fall into a trap that Republicans set and Republicans are always happy to criminalize black folks. They're always happy to criminalize people of color because that animates the base of their political project to continue to try to keep America white <laughs> and particularly, you know, um, reverse the kind of browning of America. So I think it's very important to acknowledge that we have seen a spike in crime over the last two years, but there's another way to describe it. We should be talking about the desperation that this pandemic has brought upon us. We should be talking about the proliferation of ghost guns. We should be talking about the fraud and the, and the release of so much money in our community. We should be talking about the historic levels of death that have taken a whole uh, section and swath of black elders out of our communities who are largely caring for many of our most vulnerable young black folks um, you know, because of the residue of the kind of 1994 crime bill that has stripped off, stripped away a whole nother layer of black parents and, and, and um, communal stability. And so if I have a problem with the Republicans narrative around crime, it is because I believe it is racist. It is false. It is um, gaslighting. If I have a problem with the Democrats frame of which I do, it is because it is unimaginative. It is uninformed and it is not seeking to, to really tell the full story about the real sense of desperation and vulnerability that so many people in our communities across the country are dealing with. Um, and that is why I think the Democrats lose on the public safety message so frequently, and they end up trying to defend a straw man argument rather than actually defending the people who are dealing with the brunt of this issue. I got it. Okay. And so have there been any are there any is there any model legislation that you feel has been put forward to at least attempt to address some of the issues that we're discussing right now? So you, that was a, a very policy heavy um, answer in, in some of the things that you said. I'm aware that you 
are heavily involved in community violence intervention programs. That is one um, that's one way to address some of the issues. It's not the only only way to address it, but that is one way. And I'm also aware that there's been money put into federal budgets that would, you know, release money to states so that states could release it to, you know, local jurisdictions to attempt again to address some of these systemic challenges that plague many of the black and brown communities that are experiencing these high levels of crime. So I'd like you to just speak about some of the legislation. Does it go far enough? Was it enough at all? Um, because that's some of the things that we hear advocates on both sides of the aisle say, you know, I've heard, you know, the that conversations have broken down um, b- between Senator Tim Scott and Senator Cory Booker um, and both have played both sides of it didn't go far enough. It wasn't enough. You know, you didn't meet me in the middle. And so just for listeners who are saying, listen, I don't want to get carjacked when I go to the grocery store. I don't want to, you know, have someone pull a gun on me as I'm exiting an arena. How can the listener really understand what's happening in their day ex- lived experience with what's happening at the federal level to address some of the crime that we're seeing over and over again? No, I, I think that's a very important question and and project that we have to continue to, to not only do a better job of, but but leaning fully. I'll, I'll say a couple of things, right? Like, I, I certainly think it's important to acknowledge the material reality of so many in our communities who do feel proximal, vulnerable, and overwhelmed by the appearance or the reality of, of crime, whether it's robberies, carjackings, shootings, etc. I also think it's important to, to, to encourage us all to allow data to help um, uh, diagnose and explain uh, what crime is actually uh, or how crime is actually showing up in our communities. Because, you know, one example I, I used, uh, I was in a meeting uh, with some folks, you know, several weeks ago, after the 9-11 terror attack, if you, if you will, um, we created in this country, if folks remember, these, these color code levels around um, the threats, right? And it was like, mm-hmm. you know, yellow, yep. red, orange, and, and, and these were very arbitrary kinds of designations that literally created a sense of foreboding, fear, um, threat. We've, ne- we've never had an attack since then, but there were moments and times during the, the use of those colors that we were put on this high alert and people allowed that to make them look at, look at their Muslim or Arab or, or, or Middle Eastern loved ones as if they may come and cause harm to them. It's important for all of us to know similarly that law enforcement agencies are now being monitored and and proven to have invested hundreds of thousands of dollars in social media managers to amplify uh, incidences of violence that are happening in our communities. They are literally posting and and publishing carjackings and robberies and police encounters that show that attempt to show that our communities are much more under siege than the data is telling us. But, but Mike, right? wait a minute, wait a minute. What you just said is so powerful. You're saying, if I'm hearing you correctly, that police police districts across this country are paying people inside of yeah. their own district to highlight crime. Yes. To highlight crime, to invoke fear. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And there's research that that proves this. I'm not, you know, I'm not I'm not making this up. It's called propaganda. You can Google it. Propaganda. It, 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 it's a real thing. Now, that does not that does not uh, um, uh, dismiss the real feelings and experiences of people who are proximal. Right. To this to these incidences of violence. But if we were to tell you that crime since its height, uh, you know, maybe during the middle of the pandemic, is actually trending back downwards, mm-hmm. right? You wouldn't be able to tell that by the narrative that is being created all across this country as if the country is drowning in crime. Mm-hmm. And so part of what we have to do, right, is allow our decisions, our governance, our voting, our calls for uh, community safety to be grounded in data. What kind of crime should we be responding to? You know, uh, and what what uh, kinds of crimes are usually about desperation and uh, issues of poverty? Robberies are largely about poverty, even carjackings. Though terrible and 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 traumatizing it is, most folks who are stealing cars are taking them to chop shops to sell the parts and get money. Not so they can go get a private jet, but so they can literally (laughs) try to survive with food and clothes and diapers. Now, I do not excuse, endorse, and I do not want anyone to be carjacked. But if the solution (laughs) to crimes rooted in poverty um, is is seen as actually addressing the material needs of poverty, why why should we not ensure that guaranteed basic income strategies um, investments in uh, poverty alleviate, alleviation, housing, food programs, uh, these kinds of, 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 of public policy interventions that are within our reach to implement. Why aren't we calling for that? Why are we calling for hundreds of millions? The president su- uh, submitted a $13 billion budget uh, framework in his America Safer plan to hire 100,000 more cops. What could we do with $13 billion to alleviate poverty in our communities among the small number of individuals who are caught in these cycles of desperation? So all I'm saying is, yes, crime and violence has and is been an issue, but the policy solutions around punitiveness, investing in policing as the singular response is also a problem. And so we ought to hold solutions um, that are actually geared towards solving the problem and not just reach for cheap political uh, throwback strategies that we know do not actually address violence in our communities. Well, well, just off of what the last thing you just said, reaching for cheap political throwback non-solutions, let's talk about the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. That's something right after you know the 2020 protests we saw Hundreds, if not thousands of people take to the streets and protest what we all saw on video on camera, George Floyd being murdered at the hands of police. There were many corporations, many calls for justice and policing reforms for the way police interact with black and brown people. And yet that bill hasn't passed. So what what do you say? Like, what do you say to the listener who says, you know, I remember being in the streets in 2020 protesting in solidarity for not only George Floyd, but for black lives. And yet we don't have a piece of policy in our hand that can address the same thing that said legislators, said corporations 
And even this administration has said that they would do to ensure that people that look like you and I feel safe. So we can have this $13 billion in a in the American Rescue Plan to increase the number of police officers who are on the streets. But where's the $13 billion, again, to your point, to address some of the systemic issues that are plaguing the communities? But also, what about this Justice in Policing Act and why hasn't it passed? So I will say several things. Number one, I always lead with Angela Davis's reminder that freedom is a constant struggle. Mm-hmm. And so our disappointment around some of these policy solutions we've championed, not making it through the Senate and the House ought to embolden us to continue to stay active and organizing and calling for these issues, not taking our toys and going home. Um, Freedom is a constant struggle. Number two, we must become much more clear about the policy proposals that could in fact be an alternative to these, you know, failed investments in policing. Uh, The Justice in Policing Act, uh, the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act, was one of many policy proposals that were put forth. And we unfortunately could not get enough senators to vote in favor of it. And so the the question for us is about governance at the end of the day, right? Uh, At times, the federal policy uh, will lag far uh, behind what local and state policies we could implement. We worked in well over a dozen or so cities where we helped to change the policing uh, practices through uh, changes in local police policies around car chases. So many uh, police shootouts and injuries between civilians and law enforcement officers happen during car chases. In many of our cities, we've been able to literally create a new car chase policy that has saved lives. We created these new policies where police cannot chase uh, suspects into backyards and in between houses. Why? Because many of these incidents are largely done in the dark, and that's how law enforcement officers or civilians are injured. Little tweaks in local policy can go a long way. And then it creates these almost a thousand flowers blooming at the same time across the country that then could literally bubble up to state and federal policy. But I will say there have been a number of us in a coalition that have called for the People's Response Act, right, which would actually create a a public health alternative uh, to law enforcement officers showing up when someone is dealing with a mental health crisis. Um, We should pass that at the federal level. We already talked about the Breaking the Cycle of Violence Act, which just got passed at the House level, and now we're seeing if it'll get passed at the Senate level. Uh, The Mental Health Justice Act, which literally talks about uh, how do we make sure we have other uh, public health professionals showing up uh, to homes, to schools, rather than armed individuals when people are dealing with uh, various forms of schizophrenia or bipolar, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, There's all kinds of alternative policies. I think these policies are so new in the kind of policy framework discussion of the federal level. We ought to keep pushing these policies, but we ought not allow Democrats to become the fund the police uh, arm of uh, the political apparatus trying to outdo the Republicans. Mm-hmm. I reject this idea that police who have gotten the largest increase of funding in the last three years during COVID need more funding in order to address the rise in crime. That is a political talking point that is cheap. It is immoral. It is lazy. 
And it is sacrificing the safety, the well-being of black and brown and under-resourced communities for the sake of some, you know, you know, I don't know, uh, what do they call these people, these blue, blue dog Democrats or these people in these, you know, uh, competitive districts. Uh, I, I reject that. And, and shame on all of us who feel like that's the only way for us to win elections is to keep throwing our communities under the bus. I'm so glad, Mike, that you mentioned this whole defund the police rhetoric, um, because that's been something that Democrats, we've gotten we've got pinged for that. We've gotten hit for that because people feel like it, it's anti-police. We're saying because we want money diverted to other resources that could address some of the systemic issues. But the, the tagline, people hear anti-police. People hear, I don't like the police. People hear police are bad. Um, people hear all the people conjure up a number of different ideas about what they believe defund the police is. So could you just explain to listeners how, again, and you started the conversation that multiple things can exist at one time and multiple things can be true. And I'd like to just really explore if for a brief moment, just how this defund the police rhetoric has really gotten a, the Democratic Party in a chokehold. I mean, just yeah, I, with the I, way I that think, it's, it's I, messaged. Okay. So I think that, <laughs> unfortunately, Democrats, um, as I stated earlier, uh, are trapped in a dissonance around their own anti-Blackness. Mm. Um, it is and they hard don't want to say th- that, right? They're, they're not naming Sorry. it. They're not naming that dissonance. No, and that's what I was about to say. It is it is very hard to acknowledge that largely um, most politicians, regardless of race, regardless of political persuasion, do not believe that the worst conditions of black and brown communities can be solved without police. Mm. Wow, that's that's a, that's major. And, and I believe that it is a it bears itself out in policy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because if for decades we've been saying that our communities need better schools, our communities need more funding for community centers, our we need more funding for how we've been saying the same things for decades, and there's never any money to do it. But there's always money to put more police in our communities. Mm. Not only any kind of police, but the most anti-black, virulent, racist, psychologically abusive, physically terroristic police in our communities that can shoot people on video and not be held accountable. This is the best response to our community's worst conditions. There is, I think, a dissonance, a, 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 a disconnect between the the political leadership of our country on all sides of the political aisle and the reality of how violence and desperation shows up in our communities. It is so much easier to describe people in our communities that you don't know as monsters and as, you know, these wild, you know, uh, untamed beasts that need to be put down and put in jail. But when you know these individuals and you speak with them, and you talk with them and you understand that the large majority of folks caught in cycles of violence and crime, they are desperate. They are un- feeling unprotected. They are feeling unsafe. 
And if you can solve those problems with them, they will largely cease from their activity without having to go to jail. Mm -hmm. But if we don't have the courage to believe our own community's capacity to be healed, to heal, to recover with a large investment of our own tax base, then we will continue to be uh, caught as a a prisoner of these failed uh, strategies. And so, yes, I, I do believe that um, too many of our lawmakers are, are they're afraid to, to stand up for these communities, our communities, because uh, I had one congressperson tell our group that the people you're advocating for, this is an African-American congressperson, said that the people you're advocating for do not have a constituent, a voice or constituency voice because they don't vote. Wow. And so if they're not voting, you know, us fighting for them in the Congress, um, you know, means that we are all putting our political lives um, in the hands of non-voters. And I found that to be a both, you know, disappointing, but also a revelatory statement to us. And that is why we who do vote must vote with these folks in our minds. Yeah. Like all of us have individuals in our families who are, proximal caught up in this stuff and and shame on us who taught us to fall out of love with our own children with our with our own cousins with our own family members many of us know that a lot of our family members are are engaging in activity that would be considered crime because they their mind is constantly altered through drug addiction and drug use we know many of them have suffered some form of abuse both sexual physical mental psychological throughout the course of their life we know that many of them have a, a criminal record from nonviolent drug offenses that they got 20 years ago or 10 years ago and they can't get a job. We know many of them have been caught up in violent cycles and they can't figure out how to get out of it. And they're, they're literally surfing on couches from all of our families on the run half the time. We know these stories. Right. We do. And so we do. It's up to us to be their advocate, not to continue to be like complicit, silent, you know, so consumed with our own fear of 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 um, being uh, victimized that we actually unleash the hounds of hell, which is American policing, in my opinion, American policing without accountability mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. is tantamount to the hounds of hell being unleashed in our communities. And we ought to be very clear about that. The FBI said in 2014 that white supremacist elements were infiltrating law enforcement agencies all across the country. Mm. We know that there's all kinds of alliances that the fraternal orders of police have with the Donald Trumps of the world, with the Oath Keepers of the world, with the Proud Boys of the world. Now, that does not mean that that's 70, 80 percent of every law enforcement agency in this country. But how many law enforcement officers do you need to have in your police department before that sentiment begins to influence the way policing and safety are literally carried out in our communities. We need to have a conversation about that. And I think Democrats are unwilling to do it because they are unwilling to wrestle with their own internalized anti-blackness and stereotype threats um, that are, are extended to black and brown folks in our country. So then, Mike, it, how do we begin to have that conversation? I mean, mm. obviously, we're having it today. Because we are on this platform talking about it, but how can we introduce that part, that 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 missing piece about the disconnect, um, the that plagues 
the police officers and the community and how we can bridge it. Because there are people out here who are going to say, who will, who will listen to this and say, well, I don't know that I want to vote. I don't feel safe in my community. I don't like the police. So why should I go out and continue to champion a an elected official who is pro-police when my community is continuing to be plagued by violent crime or I've experienced violent crime? How do we address the gap? Because there's a gap that exists between the voter and the, and the people that you just spoke about that we know family members who are proximal to these kinds of issues that we're discussing, but also the elected official that doesn't get it, that is mm-hmm. still operating in this cycle of misunderstanding the communities that they serve. How do we begin to address that and have that conversation so that more folks can and will vote and so that elected officials will be more accountable to their constituents, even when they believe that they do not vote? Yeah, so I think that the, the answer to that is organizing. And it's 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 not the the a sexy answer for a lot of folks. It's mm-hmm. not a quick fix that a lot of us want. But even the Break the Cycle of Violence Act that has just made it through Congress, many of us have been working on on this kind of framework for funding for well over ten years. Can you talk and about that 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 framework a little bit just for the listener? The yeah, Break absolutely. Cycle. So Break the Cycle of Violence is a a public health framing of addressing gun violence through. Uh, intervention specialist strategies that target the less than 1% of our city's population that drives almost as much as 60% of the gun violence in our communities. And so if you have 100 shootings in your city, it's not because you have 100 different people shooting. Most likely you have maybe a dozen or so folks who are caught in violent cycles and they are what we would call volume shooters or, or volume uh, firearm offenders. And so, you know, Break the Cycle of Violence understands that in order to address this particular expression of violence in our communities, we need federal funding to help uh, infuse local municipalities who are trying to scale up these strategies in a way that does not create a budget fight in uh, cities over scarcity. And the Break the Cycle of Violence Act, we were able to uh, uh, get the the Biden administration to commit to $5 billion um, in uh, their budget uh, in in the the Build Back Better Act. Many of these things are still making their way through Congress, but we did uh, also create a a bill in the Congress where two and a half billion will be in the DOJ, two and a half billion will be in the health and human services. And that will be a eight to 10 year funding bill that will be able to help create the capacity and the infrastructure for these strategies to scale up. Now, it's so important to appreciate while that is a huge historic investment, it pales <laughs> in, in comparison to the amount of money that exists and is continuing to flow into law enforcement. And so the way we organize ourselves, right, is mm-hmm. to make sure, number one, that we continue to mainstream and socialize and amplify that there are alternatives to addressing violence in our communities that do not require a bloated, overly funded law enforcement apparatus. Now, it's very important to be precise about words because too often people are disingenuous about what the defund the police movement has been asking. And I'm okay to to say that, you know, the slogan may not have been the best communications language for the mainstream, 
but people are disingenuous when they act as if they don't understand what people were asking because we've been asking for the same thing for decades. If a police department is already 30 or 40% of the general fund of your city, why do they need to grow to 50%, right? right? Why why ought we not take some of those resources and uh, keep the police funded, but not continue to only fund police when a, a spike in crime happens? Break the cycle of violence gives us now other, you know, kind of structures to be able to fund non-police responses to violence. Again, particularly if these things are, are rooted in homelessness, group violence, interpersonal conflicts. We can use public health strategies to intervene. The response is we must organize our folks uh, to understand these strategies. We must sit in homes and community centers. We must talk at churches. We must hold meetings with elected officials, bring them into our spaces. They ought to meet our violence interrupters, our credible messengers, our street outreach workers. They must meet the victims and survivors of violence whose lives have been turned around Mm -hmm. by, by engaging in these strategies. We cannot sit on the sideline and allow this conversation to be hijacked by the kinds of authoritarian forces of the right-leaning political projects in this country and then look up 10 years later and wonder why do we have another era of mass incarceration, mass criminalizations, and our communities are still not safe. It's up to us to organize folks into these strategies and into this consciousness. Okay. Well, that that's helpful. That's helpful, Mike, explaining that to the listener, to the voter. And I'd like to, you know, kind of culminate our conversation, just again, thinking about the midterms, thinking about the work that Live Free does and explaining a little bit about what are some resources people can reach out to as they're thinking about, you know, violence ahead of the midterms, groups like yourself, like Live Free, you talked about violence interrupters, you talked about programs that you've implemented in at least minimally, at least 12 cities across this the, the country. But but share with the listener a little bit about what Live Free does and how the work that you're doing is helpful as people head to the polls in a few weeks um, for the midterm elections. Yeah, Live Free USA is a, a national network of peacemakers. We call ourselves people who believe that we can have peace in our time through empowering those who are formerly incarcerated, close to violence, um, those who are survivors of violence. We can empower peacemakers to literally organize our communities into community safety strategies. I would say to you, go to liveforusa.org, connect with us. We will connect you to an organization, an organizer, uh, folks who are skilled in helping educate, train, and build the power needed in local municipalities across the country to reach a tipping point. Um, We are part of the Fund Peace uh, Initiative uh, that is a part of our Black Brown Peace Consortium, uh, which is a collection of the top leading um, black and brown led gun violence prevention groups. We have well over 250 groups who are gun violence prevention groups in our fun peace kind of family. Those organizations literally are the frontline workers who intervene in violence in schools and neighborhoods. These organizations are in our cities all across the country. 
your listeners should become very familiar with these folks. Uh, we should support them. We should donate to them. We should invite them to our churches, invite them into our homes, listen to these individuals. They can educate you about all the violence that happens in our communities. Just recently, there was a tragic shooting in the city of Oakland at one of our high schools. And because I fly all over the country now and I'm not able to be home as much as I would like, and I have to work through my violence intervention family. And so these individuals, they know what happens way before the police ha knows what happens. I call a few folks. They can tell me exactly what happens. That's helpful. Why? Because then we can do intervention that actually creates healing and not harm. Everyone in this country who cares about violence needs to be connected to violence interrupters and credible messengers if not for anything more than to learn what's happening in your cities, to embrace these individuals, to love on these folks, to support these folks, to be their champion in rooms where they don't get an opportunity to uh, be present. Um, this is very easy relational work that all of us could do, um, but we can't allow fear to paralyze us as to give our lives over into the hands of institutions that we know for hundreds of years have failed to produce the very outcomes we're asking for. This is not an effort to demonize you know, police officers, but it is a truth-telling project we must be committed to saying. Mm -hmm. This will liberate the good you know, individuals in the policing profession who are in this for the right reasons if we can help make sure that the profession is actually accountable. It is led by, informed by, and accountable to the people. I think that is our work. And so feel free again to go to liveforusa.org. Uh, as we get close to the election, we are going to be asking tough questions to the Congressional Black Caucus and to Democrat uh, candidates. How is it that less than three years after you all proclaimed the 1994 crime bill was a failure, that you are now signing off on $13 billion to hire 100,000 more cops? What happened to all the outrage? Right. Did he just take uh, a lecture from Nancy Pelosi and Jim Clyburn uh, to strong arm y'all into losing your principles and your morals and your commitments to our communities? Um, if that's all it takes, then it shows to me that you don't feel very accountable to the people you literally were standing with, taking a knee with in Congress with Kunta Kinte cloths on <laughs> and, and out here talking about, you know, Black Lives Matter, to me, it means that you're kind of full of crap. And, and that's, that is the truth we ought to have a conversation about as well, because it is very painful for many of us who live at the intersection of all of these, you know, kind of social ills in our communities to see Black elected officials and so-called progressive elected officials reaching for strategies that just several years ago, there was consensus that they were failed strategies. Mm. Remind us, Mike, remind the people that remind us of that, because that's so important. What you just said that less than three years ago, we were in a different place. 100%. And look at where we are now, weeks ahead of the midterm elections. Yep. Yep. And 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 to me, the most painful part about this is there are other ways, in my opinion, to describe the rise in violence and the way law enforcement has been receiving windfalls of money. The mm -hmm. CARES Act, the American Rescue Plan, if we were to audit those dollars and some have, the, I think it's the Just Policy Institute or our, our, our comrades at the University of Chicago put out reports that said 
that the overwhelming majority of public safety money that came out of the American Rescue Plan dollars went to law enforcement. Wow. That was a trillion dollar American Rescue Plan package. They've already received in 18 months hundreds of millions of dollars. Wow. And so this idea that, you know, even while folks have been saying defund the police has been this rallying cry, it has not happened politically and reality right. in reality in our communities. We've been saying defund the police, and in the last two years, funding has been flowing to the police. Mm. So why don't the Democrats just say that? Why don't the Democrats say in the last two years in the Biden administration, since the Congress has been held by the Democrats, we have funded the police? <laughs> That's all you gotta say. But no, you want to make up a policy to fund police more because you're ineffective in literally talking about not only what you have done, but what is the real issue around what is causing crime and violence. Uh, I find it despicable. Mm -hmm. I find it to be mendacious. I find it to be um, gaslighting. And we deserve better political champions than the ones we have. And I will say people like Ilhan Omar and some of these, you know, uh, Justice Democrats, they caved. The members of the Congressional Black Caucus, they came wow. um, because they all were being fed this line that we don't want to be blamed for losing the midterms. Mm. Well, you will be blamed for a new era of mass criminalization in our communities if that's what it comes to. And I think that people need to be held accountable mm. for their votes, for their failed leadership. Mm. And we as the people need to be held accountable for how well we organize, how well we continue to push for the policies we want. We ought to be uncompromising. We ought to be very clear. We ought to be compassionate to our own community members who have literally gone through the worst public health crisis pandemic in a hundred years. We ought to have compassion for our own people. It does not excuse the experience of people have, having violence in prox that is proximal to them. But <laughs> man, as someone again, who is victimized by aggressive, unaccountable, unconstitutional policing, it does not feel good to believe and to be conscious that we have now put a battery pack in the policing profession for another 10 years, just when we thought we had taken the battery pack out of their bag in the wow. last 10 years. It's very disheartening. Mm -hmm. And so I hope we can keep doing the work that we're doing. And I appreciate platforms like this. And I hope as folks talk on, you know, cable news and write in the New York Times and, you know, preach their sermons and make their raps and, you know, uh, march. I hope we all can have a, a collective narrative that our people can be helped without having to you know, scale up unaccountable policing practices and agencies in this country. Wow. So powerful, Mike. Thank you so much for sharing that with the listeners. Thank you also for just bringing truth to the conversation around how we talk about policing in this country and how our elected officials have to be held accountable. I know it's uncomfortable for us to hear that our favorite elected official um, backslid. It's uncomfortable for us to hear that our favorite um, party um, didn't do what they said they were going to do a couple of years ago. But in order for us to really close these gaps, we have to remind folks that this is what you said. I hear what you say. 
but I also see what you do. And so I just want to thank you for taking the time to speak with us today and share with us not only your truth, but the truth and policy that exists in policing as it is right now ahead of the midterm elections. We always hear this election is the most critical election. We hear that every single every single year. Um, but until we understand the policy behind elections, and the people that we are voting for and why it's important to vote um, and what people are doing with our vote, we won't get any further in this conversation. And so I just want to thank you for coming on the Crystal Night Show brought to you by Newsweek. Thank you for speaking with our listeners. Thank you for sharing in the work that you do. And thank you for your service, not only to this issue, but to the community that you serve. So thank you so much. Well, it's my pleasure. And thank you for having me. And I look forward to uh, the success of your work. Thank you. Received. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Crystal Night Show brought to you by Newsweek. The best way you can support us is to give your five-star review on Apple iTunes and be sure to check out our diverse lineup of over 12 different podcasts and radio programs at newsweek.com forward slash podcast. I'm Crystal Knight. Thank you for listening. And be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcast to The Crystal Knight Show. Mm-hmm.